0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Amnesty International's In A Nutshell podcast. My name is Nick and I'll be your guide as we try to get a better understanding of some of today's big issues. Stuff you see in the news, but might not know loads about. And we're all busy people, so we're gonna try and do it in around half an hour. Our first subject is ISIS.
1: For people you know, in the and looking at ISIS through the mainstream media, you're mainly gonna see people with beards and guns, decapitating people or blowing things up. That's Christian Benedict,
0: he's Amnesty UK's crisis campaigns manager. I guess he's right, ISIS certainly know how to make the front pages. Outrage in Jordan as one of its pilots is burnt to death by
2: IS extremists.
3: The Islamic State militant group has beheaded US aid worker Peter Kasich. The Prime Minister has responded to the threat on the life of a British hostage by saying this country will never give in to terrorism nor pay
0: We've all seen the headlines. Mass executions, videos of journalists beheaded, gay men thrown off buildings, women captured, raped and sold as slaves. And just as terrifying is that people from all around the world, here in the UK and in France, Germany, Sweden, are flying out to join them. Last February, three teenage girls from Bethnal Green, a couple of miles from where I'm sitting now, packed their bags and hopped on a flight to join ISIS. I had a lot of questions. And as I'm not an expert on this topic, I spoke to some people who are. One of the first people I caught up with was Amnesty's senior crisis Response Advisor, Donatella Rivera. I asked her if she had any advice for someone trying to learn more about ISIS.
4: Stay away from anybody who gives you ISIS in 30 minutes. You can only really misrepresent a situation that has been going on for a number of years, which is very multifaceted you're gonna give them a bad product.
0: Not exactly words of encouragement. I saw her point, though. As soon as I started working on this, I began to panic. Would I be able to explain ISIS in a nutshell? Even their name is confusing. Like me, you've probably heard them being called different things. IS, the Islamic State. ISIL, Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Or ISIS, Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Sham. I was told that their enemies like to call them Daesh, the Arabic acronym for ISIL, which is used as a form of disrespect. For consistency, I'm going to call them ISIS, though I should point out that no one I spoke to acknowledged that they were a legitimate state or that they represented Islam. Here's Zahid Akbar, Human Rights Director of the
5: Association of British Muslims. Beyond the Muslim declaration of faith, on the black flag, I see no Islam in ISIS. The actions of ISIS give us a terrible insight into the way a religion can be abused and made an instrument of evil. So who are ISIS? I asked Donatella.
4: Well, there isn't a a, a simple answer. ISIS has almost become a brand name. It's a series of groups that are operating in Syria, Iraq mainly, but also expanding into other areas. ISIS is not the start. It's the latest incarnation of a very extremist project that has been around the region for many, many years.
0: To a beginner like myself, Donatella's answer sounded a little vague. I'd only seen ISIS in the papers for the past couple of years, so I was surprised to discover they actually had a long and complex history. I'll now try and give a somewhat oversimplified version of their backstory. There are a couple of key people that are useful to focus on. The first is a guy called Abu Masab al-Zukawi. In his youth, Zukawi was involved in street gangs in his native Jordan, but by the end of his life had become a figurehead of the Iraqi insurgency with a bounty of 25 million US dollars on his head. Zaqawi fronted various militant groups fighting the U.S. occupation of Iraq. But it wasn't just the foreigners he wanted rid of, he was also a Sunni Muslim who felt that all Shia Muslims must be eradicated. In late 2004, his group pledged allegiance to Osama bin Laden and created the group Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI. Zaqawi was killed by an American airstrike in 2006 and AQI began to decline. By 2008, nearly 2,500 Iraqi insurgents had been killed and over 8,000 were in prison. One of those under lock and key was the second person you need to know about. His name is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and he was in a US detention facility called Camp Bukha in southern Iraq. Camp Bukha became a breeding ground for extremism. During my research, I read an interview with a fellow inmate of Baghdadi's in The Guardian. The inmate said, We could never have all got together like this in Baghdad or anywhere else it would have been impossibly dangerous. Here, we were not only safe, but we were only a few hundred meters away from the entire Al-Qaeda leadership. In the middle of this breeding ground was al-Baghdadi. Al-Baghdadi was an Islamic scholar, and prior to his arrest, had formed a small Sunni militant group. In Camp Bukha, al-Baghdadi became a ringleader and mentor. Also in Bukha were many ex-leaders of Saddam Hussein's military. Al-Baghdadi was released in 2009, and to again quote his fellow inmate, by 2009, Many of us were back doing what we did before we were caught. But this time, we were doing it better. Al-Baghdadi quickly rose through the AQI ranks and became leader in May 2010. The withdrawal of US troops from Iraq left an absence of security and the group regained strength. Meanwhile, in Syria, the uprising against Bashar al-Assad presented Baghdadi with an opportunity to expand. He used the fight against the Syrian president to breathe new life into the group and gain new territory al-Baghdadi changed the group's name to ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham, and after growing tensions, they split from al-Qaeda. ISIS continued to expand in both Syria and Iraq, and on June 29, 2014, ISIS declared the establishment of a caliphate, an Islamic State with al-Baghdadi as its self-proclaimed leader. This so-called Islamic State remains unrecognized by the international community. So what exactly are they trying to achieve? I spoke to Farah Pandit, the first ever special representative to Muslim communities at the U.S. Department of State and a senior fellow at Harvard University.
6: Right, so ISIS is an ideologically focused non-state organization. They are claiming to want to build a caliphate, meaning a pure uh, Islamic state that will propel a more pure form of the religion of Islam.
1: They are trying to bring about a pure Sunni state, pushing out by force or by fear people who are not like them. And that includes other Muslims. They've killed more Muslims than they've killed non-Muslims. That's just a fact.
0: Islam has two major denominations, Shia and Sunni. Shias and Sunnis disagree on the lineage of the faith's leadership since the death of the prophet Muhammad. As a result, each group regards the other as apostates betrayers of true Islam. Extremists on both sides believe that apostates must be eradicated in order for the Muslim faith to be purified.
1: Are you suggesting that not all Sunni Muslims are safe? Sunnis that were working for the security forces of any of the governments in the region wouldn't be seen as pure. Sunnis who are part of the opposition to Assad, wanting a secular democratic state in a future Syria, wouldn't be seen as pure. They're a threat to anybody who doesn't subscribe to their beliefs. They're not
2: looking to compromise. Whilst we don't like saying that the Islamic State is an actual state, they certainly do have a territory that they control, stretching from Aleppo in Syria to the outskirts of Baghdad. That's around 900 kilometres. They are controlling a population of between five and six million people.
0: That was Peter Newman. Professor of Security Studies at King's College London and director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalization.
3: Iraq's crisis is deepening as Islamist militants have seized two more towns northeast of Baghdad. Over the past few days, fighters from the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, have seized several key cities, including Mosul and Tikrit.
1: They are an expansionist ideology, and I don't see them stopping and respecting borders just because those borders are there.
0: But where does that expansion stop?
2: The first step is to conquer the Muslim world and then to use that strength in order to confront the West and the rest of the world. I've seen maps of what this final caliphate could look like. One of them takes
1: in southern Spain, all of North Africa. Others taking the whole world, even Iceland and Greenland, and
2: thinking, what? They are constantly talking about conquering Washington D.C. and seeing the black flag of Islam flying over Buckingham Palace, etc., etc. I mean, for the time being, of course, that's ridiculous rhetoric. But if you ask them, they would probably say that maybe in a hundred or two hundred years they would be at the point where they were able to do that.
0: I was relieved to hear their plans for world domination described as ridiculous, but I still wondered how they defeated an area the size of Britain with apparent ease. Each person I spoke to threw new light on the many ways that they're taking over, and not just with guns, like I presumed. Here's Christian again.
1: They engage in conventional military operations, like a regular state, but they also have a social arm, a business arm, a humanitarian arm. The beginnings of a functioning government, a security vacuum is critical for them. If you have an absence of the rule of law, if you have an absence of real security, functioning police and courts and armed forces, then you will have these vacuums.
0: In these areas that were already unstable and lack security, ISIS would go in and fan the flames. I spoke to Armil Khan, a Middle East political communication specialist.
7: Doing things like attacking shrines and things like that that cause sectarian strife, and then stepping in and positioning themselves as the as the saviors of this group is a declared tactic by these guys. They put that in documents.
1: ISIS have thought about this for a very, very long time, for a number of years. How to create chaos and a security vacuum. Then, coming on board and saying, we can help you, we can provide security, we can give you water, we can give you free vaccinations, we can give you
7: food. They're good at imposing a sense of order in conflict. And that is very attractive to people. In that scenario, And your life's on the line, your family's life's on the line, a lot of people will say, OK, well, you know, the issues of freedom and, and how you see your worldview are secondary to me right now. If you can guarantee that the bombing will stop, that the mortars will stop, and that my kids won't get abducted on the way to school, then, then I will acquiesce in your control over my town.
0: As Armel points out, people in these areas are not necessarily ideologically driven to join ISIS, they are just trying to survive. And beyond that, ISIS have found ways to get people personally invested. Here's Peter Newman again.
2: You have to imagine that these territories have not been properly governed for years. There are a lot of disputes between people that have never been resolved by proper courts. So one of the first things they do whenever they get hold of a new territory is that they establish a so-called Sharia court that is often actually quite popular. As soon as, say, a court order by a Sharia court has been handed out, you as the claimant or as the defendant, you have a vested interest in that Sharia court continuing to exist. So you almost by default become a supporter of the Islamic State because you know that if the Islamic State were to disappear, probably the rights that you have gained from the Sharia court would be null and void too.
0: Sharia law is Islamic, moral and religious law. ISIS's interpretation of Sharia law has harsh set penalties for specific crimes.
1: Some people who have been accused of crimes have been crucified. Some people have been stoned to death. So it's very, very extreme. It's been filmed and circulated as a form of creating fear, but also creating deterrence.
0: I'd always imagine that ISIS were just using brute force, but it seems like they have a much simpler approach. Give people what they want and need, and in return they have to support you. It's one thing for civilians to buy to ISIS rule, but how are they convincing people to risk their lives fighting for them? Is it just about ideology?
1: You know, if ISIS can pay 400 to $500 per person per month compared to say 150 to $200 for the other groups, then people who are poor, who are not necessarily ideologically driven by a worldview of ISIS, but are just poor and want to feed the family, will join ISIS. That's just the reality of non-conventional warfare.
0: War isn't cheap. ISIS need a considerable amount of cash to maintain their project. I asked Christian, how do they pay for it all?
1: They've been largely self-sufficient, financially self-sufficient, since mid-2000s. They're a little bit like the mafia. Extortion rackets, kidnapping for ransom. When they take over an area, they take over everything. They demand that businesses pay a tax. So they're getting a lot of money from taxation. One of the key things though, is that they have managed to secure and control oil fields. So, you know, in the northeast of Syria, where there's a lot of oil, uh, it's one of the first things that ISIS did. They took control of those oil fields. You know, some estimates are saying they're making around $2 million per day from oil and that they have reserves of about $2 billion. But you've got to have a customer who's, yeah. who's buying this. There is a massive black market in Syria, in Iraq, Turkey. People need that fuel, regardless of who's selling it. Understanding that is part of the way to understand how to eventually counter them as well, in terms of cutting off their ability to raise funds.
0: Huge sums of cash mean huge resources. But what other tactics are ISIS using to win territory and people?
7: And we're here with the soldiers of Bashar. You can see them now digging their own graves in the very place where they were stationed. This is the end of every Nusayri kafir that we get a hold of.
0: We already know how they have a reputation for extreme violence, but as far as I could tell, the previous regimes of Saddam Hussein and Bashar al-Assad did too. So what were ISIS doing differently?
4: The previous regime, whether it's in Syria or in Iraq, would summarily execute, kill people and their torture in secret, and do their best to try and keep it secret. The way that ISIS has chosen to operate is to do it in a very public way, to kind of broaden significantly the extent and the scope of the fear that they wish to instill.
1: Public punishments, flogging, crucifixions, decapitations, putting severed heads in public places, filming them to spread not just their ideology and what they're doing, but also fear as a way of saying, you have no other choice, it's pointless resisting us, we're coming for you, you should submit to us.
0: ISIS have an entire media arm that produces slick Hollywood-style films of their atrocities that they post online. This has a considerable effect on their military efficiency.
4: we look at their most recent large-scale conquest, the city of Mosul, which is the second largest city in Iraq, a city of about two million people, was taken over by ISIS last June in the space of a couple of days, virtually without a fight by a few hundred armed ISIS. They could do that because the population had been primed through social media and mainstream media. People knew that they really stood very little chance if they tried to stand up to this incredibly brutal onslaught.
0: And ISIS are particularly savvy when it comes to how their message will be spread.
4: Mainstream media is no longer needed. It gets publicised on social media and that creates a pressure on conventional media to then talk about it because it's all over Twitter, because it's all over Facebook.
0: When al-Baghdani announced the establishment of a caliphate, ISIS declared that it was the religious duty of every Muslim to emigrate to this new so-called Islamic state. Earlier, we heard Zahid Akbar say he saw no Islam in ISIS. Yet, ISIS insists it's the foundation of everything they do.
6: Right now, ISIS are using this veil of what they call religion to, to develop a euphoric, mythological, romantic sense of what life could be.
7: There's a power in taking the religious, moral high ground and painting everybody else who opposes you as being religiously wrong. When you operate that kind of worldview, if anyone steps outside that, then you can essentially excommunicate them. So you roll into town, you start executing people, and if a regular person comes and says, I think what you're doing is wrong, immoral, I'm opposed to you, then they can say, oh you've just committed apostasy and therefore we can kill you too now. It's a very final and decisive way of dealing with opposition.
0: This idea of a pure Islam seemed fantastical. A harking back to a utopia that never really existed, but that is essential to the black and white vision that calls for all Muslims to obey or be killed. And to some people, that can be very seductive.
1: If your ideology is genocidal, and this is not something that is just within certain parts or certain people who happen to be Muslim. It's it's happened throughout history. Genocidal mindsets through all religions and what have you, then that's appealing, right? You're getting rid of these apostates
7: from the earth. For these kind of guys, taking the cloak of religion gives you a much bigger statement-like, religious warrior-type standing. That appeals to them because it gives them so much more power than you get from just pure force. Their brutal use of violence is no longer just brutal violence, it's a means to a much purer, you know, um, religiously sanctified end. And you can only get that by really using and, you know, I'd say exploiting religion.
1: They've totally found a way of rationalizing everything from rape through to crucifixion through to decapitation. And any new recruit will be told this is the teaching from the Quran, this is the line. And they are very effective at highlighting the passages that justify what we would call our atrocities.
0: Here's Zahid again with his thoughts on how ISIS are interpreting
5: his religion. To me, ISIS is as Islamic as KKK would be Christian. Islam insists on importance of peace and fair trial. We have seen ISIS carrying out punishments without any trial at all. Forget about fair trial, no trial at all. In certain verses of Quran, terrorism is defined as waging war against God by dismantling the very fabric of existence. So as long as their activities are concerned, I see no Islam.
4: We saw the death a lot of times. We walked 13 hours. To reach where? To reach Syrian border. To avoid sea dash. And the radicals, they're just mercenaries. They are aimless. Just killing, just to enjoy killing. And here, now how long? Five, four days. And you're here under this bridge? Yes. Why, you couldn't find a place? I couldn't find any shelter.
0: That was Donna Teller on the ground, speaking to a member of the Yazidi people.
4: It was possible to go to Iraq and to Syria before. Now, It is simply not possible to go because the risk of abduction became just too high.
0: ISIS have branded the Yazidis devil worshippers and have singled them out for enslavement or death.
4: One particular group of women who were members of the Yazidi minority, who were abducted last summer, many of them were forced into sexual enslavement, were tortured, were raped. We're forced to marry. We're forced to convert to Islam.
3: A nine-year-old girl is reportedly pregnant after being gang-raped in captivity by the militant group Islamic State in Iraq. The girl is one of over 200 Yazidi Christians released by ISIS last week. She's been flown to Germany for medical treatment. Aid workers say she is so young she could die if she delivers the baby.
0: In December 2014, Amnesty released Donatella's findings in a report detailing ISIS crimes against humanity. They included torture, mass execution, and the kidnapping and rape of women and children.
4: They ethnically cleansed the entire minority communities from the areas that they took over in a very, very short period of time.
0: While this brutal treatment is reserved only for women in minorities, this hasn't stopped other Muslim women from being second-class citizens.
4: What's life for women like? In ISIS territory, women are no longer able to uh, go out alone. They need to be with a, with a male relative. The ability for women to access the workplace has been somewhat reduced. Women teachers should only teach girls and not boys, and, and so on and so forth. Otherwise, you know, we're talking about um, societies where life was already very conservative for the most part.
0: ISIS documents make it clear that a woman's place is in the home, as a housekeeper and a mother. They also state that it's legitimate for a girl to be married to an ISIS fighter at the age of nine.
3: The BBC and Washington Post have revealed the identity of the British man nicknamed Jihadi John, who's been featured in several Islamic State beheading videos.
0: The revelation that Jihadi John had lived and been educated in London was a huge shock to many. It seemed so unreal Yet every day we hear how ISIS is seducing foreigners to join their fight.
2: According to a US government estimate, ISIS has a fighting strength of around 30 to 35,000 people. Maybe around 40% are foreigners. Up to 4,000 are from Western European countries. So there's a very significant amount of foreign participation in ISIS. For some
1: individuals, ISIS offer a chance to live a different life it's seen as a revolutionary movement. So it's different from the world that they've been living in. So for instance, maybe, you know, they can attract a lot of foot soldiers who have been quite socially excluded in their life growing up in the UK. ISIS are saying they can offer a more fulfilling life.
0: Armel came back to the simplicity of their message and how that's key to mass appeal.
7: Their broader ideology presents you with a way of looking at the problem yeah. um an explanation for the problem a proposed solution and a final state when people are unhappy with something it's often the easier solution that makes the most you know ground the quite clever part of the way they work is that that can work for somebody if they are uh, a farmer in Afghanistan you know a young you know, school leaver in Leeds a disaffected ex-prisoner from London
6: those people who feel like they don't belong who feel like they don't have purpose, who are asking questions about their religion and their identity Um, in a very new way. Jake Google is answering their questions. And the loudest voices available to them to get answers are those of the extremists.
0: ISIS recruit and promote through social media channels such as Twitter, Facebook and AskFM. On Twitter alone, ISIS supporters are operating over 40,000 accounts.
1: Sometimes people say, you know, on Facebook, you present the best version of yourself. It's the same with groups like ISIS, they present their best version of themselves. And it can be very seductive to people who don't really interrogate what ISIS are, what they're trying to do.
0: Social media gives anyone anywhere in the world access to the ISIS message. But is that really the driving force, inspiring people to fly to a foreign land and take up arms?
2: The pattern that we've observed in many European countries is that you're really talking about groups of friends. Maybe one or two people have gone over to Syria in the early phase of the conflict. They are bringing over their friends one by one. The internet plays an important role, it reinforces it, it facilitates it, it amplifies it to some extent. But when it comes to people actually packing their bags and going over to Syria, it is in most cases because they have friends who are already there.
0: When such a huge percentage of the ISIS military is made up of foreigners, what effect is that having?
2: Consider this. A lot of the Europeans that go over to Syria, they are not particularly good fighters. Many of them have never fired a gun in their entire life. In most cases, they do not speak Arabic. They don't blend in with local populations. So they are useless foreigners in a foreign land, if you want, and, and that makes you wonder, why would ISIS even want to have them? Number one, they are the most ideologically committed people. And secondly, because they do not fit in, they completely depend on the groups. It's almost like child soldiers in West Africa. Because it is a child, that child becomes completely dependent on you and will do everything you ask. We're seeing a similar thing with foreign fighters because they do not blend in, because they are not speaking local languages, because they are ideologically motivated. ISIS can use them for particularly extreme and excessively violent operations. And whenever you see videos of a beheading, of executions, of incidents, of torture, gross human rights violations, or suicide bombings, it is almost always foreigners. ISIS can use them for excessively violent operations that make the conflict worse, that make it more sectarian, that constitute gross human rights violations, and that is I would argue precisely the reason why ISIS wants them.
0: So what happens to people who get out there and discover the reality is very different to what they signed up for?
2: What kind of issues are people confronted with when they're trying to leave? ISIS does not like defectors. They will rather execute you than having you leave.
0: And for those who do escape, what kind of welcome should they get when they return home?
2: One of the worst things that Western countries can do is to strip people of their citizenship you give them no option but to stay with ISIS. Al-Qaeda emerged out of foreign fighters that had fought in Afghanistan in the 1980s and weren't allowed to return to their home countries and instead decided to stay there, form international networks and go from one conflict to the next. And if we don't want to repeat history, then we should learn that lesson and we should make it easy for people to come back and reintegrate into society.
0: Peter told me that people returning tend to fall into three categories that he calls the three Ds, dangerous, disturbed, and disillusioned.
2: Some of the people who are disillusioned can be reintegrated and rehabilitated. And those are the people that need to be picked out because those are the people that, in theory at least, could become very powerful spokespeople against ISIS once they have returned. These cases need to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. You have to assess in every individual case what danger do they pose to society and what is the most effective strategy of dealing with that particular individual.
0: So what's next for ISIS? Is their project sustainable? And do they have the means to progress?
2: What you have to understand is that ISIS is a fighting organization. If you look at the leadership of ISIS, it is full of former officers in Saddam Hussein's army. These are people of war, not people of peace. None of them have any experience in running, for example, a trash collection or services for people, and there are a lot of doubts as to whether ISIS will be able to sustain its territory if it continues to fail to deliver these services to people.
0: It seems that any defeat of ISIS relies on a multi-layered approach, and challenging their religious ideology is key. I asked Sahid what the world's Muslim community
5: could do to counter a group that was openly distorting the Islamic faith. The interpretation of Islam cannot be left to the regressive ISIS and Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda. Muslims who believe that their faith is compatible with progressive values of this century must express themselves, and express themselves not as apologists, but as proponents of new possibilities and opportunities. If moderate ones will not speak out as loudly as militants do, then the militants will end up speaking for us.
3: The Pentagon says the US military has conducted over 2,300 airstrikes against ISIL since August at a cost of $1.83 billion. Our objective is clear. We will degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL through a comprehensive and sustained counterterrorism strategy.
0: But are airstrikes the only answer? How else should the world respond?
1: As we go into this new phase of seeing them as a sort of semi-state, I wouldn't take them for granted. We've got to understand how they work, what they're trying to do, how they make their money, what their capacity is, and be undermining all of those. In the short term, you need to fill those security vacuums, you need security on the ground. Frankly, that's gonna take some form of international presence. The UN know that there's massive risks there, but that will give the space be able to push back ISIS. It needs to be done according to pure human rights-based principles, rule of law, accountability. It's a tough call, but that's the theory. It might not work, but
2: that's how it should
1: work.
0: Peter Newman raised the importance of resistance from the people living inside ISIS territory.
2: The airstrikes alone will never bring about a defeat of ISIS. What needs to happen in a second step is really for the people who are under ISIS's control to rise up against ISIS. If you send boots on the ground, whilst people are still tacitly acquiescing in ISIS's rule, it will be perceived as an occupation. In both Syria and Iraq, people are still acquiescing with ISIS because the alternative to ISIS from their point of view is even worse. I think ISIS will probably be with us for another few years. The important point is for it to not be with us for another few decades.
0: So there it is, ISIS in a nutshell. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Just go to our site, amnesty.org.uk forward slash audio, or you'll find us on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. And of course, for all things human rights, you can follow us at Amnesty UK. I want to finish up by saying a huge thanks to all our contributors and thanks to you for listening.